Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. So here's what I want to do. I want to just sort of start by, uh, by telling you something that makes me very, very excited. So next week, like one week from tomorrow, Jerry and I will have been married for 18 years. Our marriage can finally move out of the house and get a job. Uh, 18 years. And I'll tell you what, the, this, in all honesty, like our marriage is the best it's ever been. It's the best. It's like one of the, the most joy and life-giving things uh, that I experience. I, I really am thrilled uh, for our marriage. And, and one of the things, if you don't know us really well, is Jerry and I are very differently gifted. So I'm a dreamer. And I have like, I see ideas and visions and possibilities uh, all over the place. My wife is a planner, which makes us really, really, really good co-senior pastors, because I'm like, this is where we're going, and she's like, here's the 35 step that's going to take, <laughs> right? I mean, and if you're a dreamer, you know you got to have that person, right, who takes the notes, and it's like, this is how we get there, because after I go, this is where we're going, and she says, here's the 35 steps, I'm like, cool, who's going to do them, Right? So we work really well together, but it hasn't always been so. This sort of like pairing early on in our marriage was a source of great contention. Like great contention. Like in the first couple weeks and months of our our marriage, I would come home about every two or three days with a new dream about where we were going to go, what we were going to do, where we were going to live, exactly what our life was going to look like. And she would set about going, okay, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. Cool, I'll get a job here. And and she starts figuring it out. And then three days goes by and it's like, guess what? New plan. And she's like, okay, got to get rid of the old one. Okay, write down all 35 things. And I would be like, all right, cool, we have a plan, we're going for it. Three days later, hey, I heard a new thing. And you can see, those of you who are married to people like me know how infuriating that is, right? You're all like, yes, I know. I know exactly, that's what it's like, yes. Um, so this would happen over and over and over, and what happened over time is my wife started to not trust me. Like, I, my dreams weren't safe anymore. Because every time she would launch into a plan, I'd change it. I'd have a new dream and a new idea. And for me, it was fun. For her, it was terrible. And we got to this one point, I remember early, early on where she said, she said, I can't do this anymore. You need to figure out what we're doing before you tell me. And then I'll start making a plan. She got to a place where she couldn't trust my dreams because there was no certainty behind them. Right? You guys can imagine, like, this makes sense to you. Like, wow, like, the dream changes all the time, so there's no certainty any of this work is going to happen. And she got to a place, and I think she would even say now, she still, sometimes, when I'm like, here's the dream, she's like, I'll wait till you're done. 
Because there's a some level, right, of certainty that we want, right? Isn't there some level of certainty we want before we're going to act on things? The Harvard Business Review uh, came out with an article a number of years ago that said something that I think we all intuitively understand. And they said, to the degree that you have certainty about a belief, that's the degree that you'll act on it. Makes sense. You're like, yeah, I get that. It makes a whole lot of sense, right? So the more certain someone is about something they believe, the more likely they're willing to act and the quicker that they'll act, right? I mean, you guys have seen this all over the place. Like, this is just common experience. Yes, the more I believe that you're going to do what you say you're going to do, the more I trust you and I'm going to act in accordance with that. But when we apply this idea to faith in Jesus, I think we strike into something kind of foundational, don't we? Like we all sort of like, we, we know that we're supposed to share our faith, don't we? Like if you're in a church for any amount of time, you've heard somebody go, you should tell other people about Jesus, right? We all know like, you know, the Bible talks about praying for healing and we all know that we ought to go lay hands on and pray for people, but yeah, you know, I'm not so sure. We all know we're supposed to set out into transforming the spaces we inhabit by the power of the gospel to, to be kingdom agents in the world, right? And yet, we're hesitant to act. And if the Harvard Business Review is correct, it probably stems from a lack of certainty. That a lot of our problem is not that we don't know what to do, it's a lack of certainty in the thing that we put our faith in. It's a lack of certainty. And of course, you know, if you've been in church long enough, church leaders, myself, right? Any church leader that you've ever been around is like, well, we got to get them going, right? Got to motivate them, right? Go share your faith. And we'll, t- you know, anything, right? Anything short of sin, we, w- well, I mean, sometimes not even that, but to get people going, right? Guilt them into sharing their faith. Don't you know there's so many people who are going to go to hell if you don't share your faith? Have you heard this one before? Right? And, and so then everybody in the rows is like, oh my gosh, the weight of the world is now on my shoulders. I feel so guilty. I better go do this, right? Or, or like just so much fear. We use fear to motivate people. And if you know anything about fear, it's a good motivator for a really, really short period of time. Right? And so we try anything to get people moving, push them, prod them, get anything we can to get people moving, but it doesn't address the core problem, does it? Because if the study is right, the reason we don't act, the reason we don't act quickly is not because we don't know what we're supposed to do, it's because we have a lack of certainty in the thing that we're supposed to share, a lack of certainty in the faith that we have. And if you were honest with yourself, I mean, some of you, it's like, hey, that's not me at all. But for, I would guess for a lot of us, the fear to go share your faith with somebody is like, I'm not sure I even know what I believe enough to tell someone else. I don't have certainty. But what I want to talk about today is what if there was a way you could know that you belong to, to God? What if there was a way you could have certainty about your faith? What if there was some way that you could apply some biblical test to tell you where you stood? That would give you hope, wouldn't it? At least it would give us some indication of where we stood. 
And that's what I want to talk about today. We began this series at the beginning of the summer. We have, after this week, two more weeks. Some of you are like, finally. I didn't know First John was this long. <laughs> right? <laughs> finally. So two more weeks. We're going to finish this. But we began this series at the beginning of the summer. And what I told you is that First John is a letter, more like a sermon, written to a, a group of house churches that had undergone a split, that there was some false teachers who said they claimed divine inspiration that they don't need to have a relationship with Jesus to actually have uh, to know God. And so they, they struck out on their own, and they, and they went about uh, taking people with them. And what John is doing is he's trying to rebut the teaching of these false teachers and at the same time encourage the ones who are left. If you ever go about trying to say those people are not real people who follow Jesus— it strikes fear into a lot of people's hearts, right? Like, well, how do I know that I'm not? You know, how do I know if my, my faith is authentic? How do I know that I belong to God? And so John goes about saying, this is how you can know. As we get close to the end of 1 John, he says, this is how you can know. And what John says is that trusting God's love makes loving others come naturally. And that's what I want to talk about today. Trusting God's love makes loving others come naturally. I'm calling this message, How Can I Know For Sure I Belong To God? So we're going to pray, and then we're going to open Scripture and take a look. So would you pray with me? Lord, I know that you're present. I know that you're here. And Lord, I know that you are stirring by your spirit in people in this room. God, you've already been stirring me this morning, and I know that you want to stir even more in people, that people would come to a certainty of faith. God, that we wouldn't be people who live wishy-washy lives that are so uncertain, but we would be convinced God, as we look at your word, I pray that you would confirm faith in people. I pray that you would spark faith in those who struggle to believe. Lord, would you put your words in my mouth? Holy Spirit, would you put power on this message? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to look at 1 John. <laughs> like, really? Not a new book? No, not a new book. 1 John, and we're going to be in uh, 4... Uh, going, beginning at uh, verse 13. And last week we talked about how we're supposed to be pipelines of God's love, right? We said we don't have enough love to give away, though if we actually want to have limitless supply of love to give away to those who need love, we actually have to receive it from God, that God is, is who gives us the love that we can give away. And so uh, in this section, John builds on this idea and he gives us this test that we can apply to our lives to know that we belong to God. If you look at verse, uh, beginning at verse 13, we're going to walk through uh, the, John's thought process. And then I'm going to like, we're going to step through it. And then I'm going to sort of tie it up at the end, okay? Beginning in verse 13 of chapter 4, here's what we read. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. 
If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. We're going to pause right there. John says, this is how we know. You want to know if you're in relationship with God? This is how we know. And what he says is, God has given us his spirit. He says there's a purpose for God giving us his spirit. God gives us his spirit that we might receive and acknowledge the love God has given us in Jesus. That's all, A couple weeks ago we talked about how do I know a spirit of truth and a spirit of falsehood, right? If you could understand it because it sounded like this with me wearing a mask. How do we know the difference between a spirit of truth and a spirit of falsehood? The spirit of truth testifies to Jesus. So we've received God's spirit that he might enable us to receive and acknowledge the gift of his love in Jesus. This is the function of the spirit here is that the spirit enables us to receive this gift, that we would know that we are loved, that the love of God has been poured out on us because he gave his one and only son for us. The way that you can understand that is by the Spirit. And the beginning of knowing that we belong to God as the Spirit enables us is to receive and acknowledge. Receive and acknowledge. And we've talked about this in different parts as we've gone through the series, but it might help be helpful to sort of bring them all back together. Don't you think? Like, let's bring them all back together. What it means to acknowledge that Jesus has been sent by the Father, it means to acknowledge that our relationship with God has been broken. It starts there, that our relationship with God has been broken, and it's not him who broke it. It's we who broke it. The false teachers were trying to say, well, no, 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 this morality thing, broken relationship, not necessary. You don't need to acknowledge that your relationship is broken. But John says, no, that's where it starts. That we acknowledge that we broke the relationship. We find ourselves estranged from God, or as the Bible says in other places, enemies of God. And for those of us who sort of realize that we're enemies of God, we we found out that God apparently gave some rules to, to the nation of Israel when he chose them. He says, this is how you live in covenant relationship with me. And so some of us set about obeying those rules, right? We recognize, gosh, our relationship with God is messed up. So we're going to try to live the rules. But guess what happens when you try to live the rules? Anybody ever try to do that? What you find is you can't do it. Not only can't you do it, you don't want to do it. Love your neighbor as yourself. I feel like I say this all the time. I don't even necessarily know my neighbors, let alone like them or love them. Right? And some of you are like, yeah, I mean, God gives me a cutout because he knows the people who live next door. Right? Some of you are like, you don't know the neighbors that I have. I think God would be okay with it. But what you find is that in your broken state, you don't even want to do the things that God says. And all through the Old Testament, what we discover is the nation of Israel who had these these Ten Commandments, they had the covenant that, that God made with them, they couldn't do it. And not only couldn't they do it, it seemed like they didn't want to. And all of this was really just to hold a mirror up to people and say, you can't even fix this if you wanted to. You can't even fix this relationship if you wanted to. No matter how hard you try to be holy and righteous, 
It just never really works out, does it? And God forbid we're ever successful at any of it because guess what happens there? I've got it figured out. Pride and self-righteousness shows up. Turns out that's not pleasing to God either. Right? There's nothing we can do. We're stuck. We're stuck. But rather than exact on us the, us the punishment we deserve, God says, I would rather die than let them die. So he sends his one and only son, Jesus, as an expression of his love. He gives of himself for our benefit that we actually could have a relationship restored with God. That's the foundation of this whole thing. That Jesus opened the door for us to have a relationship with our Father. And what he says, what John says is, the spirit that God has given you enables you to receive and acknowledge that. That's how it starts. You receive and acknowledge that. That's where it begins. And then the last verse of that is key, and I'm going to read it again. It says, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. Think about what that means. John says that what it means to have fellowship with God, to belong to God, is to know and rely on the love God has for us. Guess what that exempts us from? From knowing and relying on our own morality. From knowing and relying on our good looks. From knowing and relying on our ability to make things go. We know and we rely on the love God has for us. It doesn't even matter how good we are at loving God in return. We don't rely on our ability to love God. We know and we rely on the love God has for us. We don't know and rely on the love we give to other people. Right? I mean, think about that for a minute. Like, I feel like... As we've been going through, it's like, you know, the, the whole of 1 John is love and, and, and acknowledge Jesus and love your brothers and sisters, right? Isn't that kind of the, the whole message as we've been going over and over and over? If you don't get this, you start loving other people so that you can hold it up to God and see how good I'm doing this. We don't rely on anything other than the fact that God loves us. That's it. Like, it's really that simple. We rely on the fact that God loves us. And we surrender everything for the sake of putting our hope and trust in that. I mean, it's sort of what Paul was saying in Philippians 3. I'll read this to you. It says, if someone else, you guys know Paul, right? He sounds sort of pompous at times, right? Some of you are like, he's kind of arrogant. Check this out. He says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he starts to list all the things that he can count on, right? Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. He's like, if you want to base hope in anything else, I got all the things. Verse 7, but whatever were gains to me, 
I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever it is I think I have, it's all garbage, but that God loves me. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul, right? Like, if we try to do the Ten Commandments, Paul's like doing it. He's from the right people. Paul says, it's all garbage that I might know and receive and acknowledge that God loves me in Christ. That's the foundation of all of it. And if you get nothing else from this message, that's the essence of all of it. That we have received the love of God in Christ and we base our whole life on it. Does that matter to you? Or is it sort of like the thing that you, you sort of know you're supposed to say? Does that capture your heart? God, the creator of all things, gave his son for you that you can rely on his love and nothing else. There's no job, there's no career, there's no money worth that. It's critical. This is the gospel. God loves you so much that he would rather die than see you die. And as the Holy Spirit gives you grace to receive and acknowledge this reality, everything changes. Look at the next paragraph. Verse 16, the second half of verse 16, it says, God is love. We talked about that last week. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We'll pause there. John says, when we receive and acknowledge and rely on the love God has for us, our relationship with God changes foundationally. Before we received and acknowledged that, our relationship with God was based on fear. We're afraid of God. We're afraid of what he's going to do if we don't live the right way. We're afraid of, I mean, some of us don't even know that he exists, right? But if you do, you start to say, what does it take to make him happy? How do I keep him off my back? But when you understand that God loves you enough to give his son for you, the relationship changes. All through the Old Testament, right? Even the, the psalm we read this morning, all through the Old Testament, it's like we've got to fear God, right? We're afraid of the wrath of God. We have to be very afraid. We have to, reverence is, is, is enough, but, but maybe it's more than that. We're afraid of God all through the Old Testament. And then something happens when Jesus comes that changes the narrative, and it changes the way that we relate to God. When you receive God's love in Jesus, the relationship you had that was based on fear gets changed into one based on love. He changes the way you relate to one another. 
I grew up in a church tradition where we had confirmation class. Anybody do confirmation? Right, so confirmation, for those of you who don't know, is in 7th and 8th grade, you go to this regular class, and the idea here is that you sort of are taught the foundations of the faith that you might at the end be able to confess on your own accord what it is that you believe. So you're taught, you know, the, the book that we used is a catechism. I mean, a number of you had, I'm sure, different books. Maybe they were all called catechisms. I don't know. Where I came from, it was called a catechism. Um, and so we get to the end of this, this thing, and, and every one of the, the, the books started this way. It started, you know, it's teaching the Ten Commandments, right? It's important things to know. You should know the Ten Commandments. And the explanation of the Ten Commandments, I read this again just the other day just to remind myself. The explanation of all the Ten Commandments, here's the commandment, boom, right? Have no other gods before me. And the explanation goes, we should fear and love God so that, right? We should fear and love God so that. And I, I was thinking about this like, okay, John just told us that fear and love can't coexist. It's like, well, maybe what, maybe what the, the author of this book means by fear is just revere, have like reverence for, which I think is important. I think, honestly, a lot of times in sort of like the, the non-traditional, sort of more uh, non-denominational church tradition, I think we dispatch reverence way too quickly. So I think reverence is really important. And so I was like, well, maybe what they mean in this book is that we should revere and love God. Nope. Here's what it says. A little bit later it says, we should fear God's wrath. Here's what happens if you cling to fear. You have to let go of, of love to cling to fear. If you can't be afraid of God and love God at the same time. You either love God or you fear God. That's what John is saying. That when we come into relationship with God through the sacrifice of Jesus, fear gets dispatched and we actually come into a relationship of love with God. Everything changes. You can either live into love with God and allow it to drive out fear, or you can cling to fear and let go of love of God. Do you see this? This makes sense? Here's how this plays out. I lived my childhood in constant fear of God. Thought I was being a good Christian, right? Constant fear of God. Do you know what it felt like to live my life as a kid? It felt like if I screwed up, God was waiting with a hammer to whack me with it. Anybody else? Anybody know that fear? Like God is so angry with me. He hates me so much that he had to kill Jesus for me. And then it was sort of like the, the image is like, see what you made me do, right? Like, this is, you got saved because of this. You should just know, right? This is the way that I thought of God because I held on to fear because that's what I was told you do. You fear and love God. Turns out you have to let go of the loving relationship with God to hold on to the fear. And I lived in a group of people that all sort of like tried to balance this. And we knew a whole lot about God. We knew a whole lot about the Bible. What we didn't know deeply was how much God loved us and how we could have a loving relationship with him. So we tiptoed around God. For some of you, that's a close experience. 
And what it made possible for me was that when I got to college, I could let go of this faith that had me living in constant fear. College professor talked me out of it. I was happy to let it go because I felt guilty all the time. I lived afraid of God all the time. And when he said, you can't know that God exists, so he probably doesn't. I was like, this feels like liberation. I feel free. Wow. It turns out I made a giant mess of my life, just in case you're like thinking that that was like the better way. It's not the better way. I made a giant mess of my life. But whenever I got to 2003 and I met Jesus, something happened. When I said yes and surrendered my life to Jesus, everything changed for me. I realized and I knew that God loved me deeply and I didn't offer anything to him but the giant mess I had made. That's all I had to offer. And I knew that I knew that I knew that God loved me. That he didn't spare anything for me. He gave it all. He gave the best to have relationship with me. And everything changed from that day on, I have not ever related to God out of fear. That's not the nature of our relationship. Even when God wants to correct me, which he does all the time. I'm sort of wayward at times. Even when God wants to correct me, it's out of his love. It's never out of his anger or fear or wrath. I have no fear of my father. None. Because he loves me. So when he wants to change my course, when he wants to turn me, I don't have to be afraid of that. I actually welcome it. I don't really know where I'm going most of the time. I just follow him. And whenever I get out of line, he goes, hey, hey, this way, this way. No, don't do that. Go apologize. It's not okay for you to do that. But I welcome this. I'm not afraid. I don't live out of fear. The Holy Spirit enabled me to see and receive the love of God in Jesus. And since that day, I don't fear judgment because as the lyrics of the famous hymn say, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. That's it. That's it. I'm not afraid. I live in love. I don't hope at all in my ability to hold on to God. I don't hope at all in my ability to get it right and keep, keep it all situated. I have all the hope in the world that he wants to hold on to me. I don't hope at all in my ability to love others well or to get all the things right. I have every hope in the world that he wants to direct me, that his, it is his desire to lead me into kingdom activity. I don't hope at all in my holiness or my righteousness. I have all the hope in the world in the holiness and righteousness of Jesus. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And here's the test that we can apply to our relationship with God. Are you afraid of God? I mean, honestly, when you think about your relationship with God, do you live in fear? Are you afraid that he's going to come to judge the living and the dead, as the Bible says and as the creeds say, and you're afraid you might not measure up? Do you live in fear? 
Are you afraid of God? Or, I mean, I'm not talking about reverence, right? We revere God. We respect God. As Tim Keller says, right? Like, only a child of God would dare wake a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water. Do you live in fear, or has that changed for you? If you live your life afraid of God, whatever religious steps you've taken, you have not fully received the love of God for you in Jesus. I can tell you that will change everything for you. It's essential that we get this because if we don't, we end up not able to actually love people. Look at verse 19. We're going to read right on past, you know the, the verse and chapters were added later. Like they're not in the original manuscripts. John wasn't like verse 19. That was added later. We're going to read on right on past the beginning of chapter 5. It says, we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Makes sense. You can't love the one you see. Who's to say you can love the one you can't see? And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. John says that the demonstration that someone has received the love of God in Jesus is that They have loving fellowship with God and that their natural inclination becomes loving other people. When you have received the love of God, the self-sacrificial love of God for your benefit, you begin to look like your father. You begin to naturally be inclined to love other people the way that he loved you. And he says that you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. He says you love your the the father, you'll love the father's children as well, right? Like you guys know, Evan and Abby had this baby, TJ, right? And I love Evan and Abby. They're wonderful people. If you don't know them, you should know them. I love them. And when they had this baby, by default, I love the baby. I wish I could get him to smile at me every now and again. I'm going to keep trying. And what John says is if you love the father then you'll love the children of the Father. That if you have been born of your Father in heaven, you will love those who are also born of your Father in heaven. You love the kids too, right? That's what he says. If you haven't received this love of God, you're still relating to God out of fear, and one of two things will happen. Either you won't love your fellow believers, which is probably most likely. When you see church splits happen, almost always that's what happens, right? We stopped loving God a long time ago, so to discard you is easy, right? Or you start doing acts of love for other believers for self-serving reasons, right? Which itself is unloving, if you didn't know that. And here's the test you can apply. Test number two. Do you genuinely love other believers for their benefit? Is that your natural inclination? Like, this is before we ever get to loving the world. 
right? It's like loving the people in this room, loving the people who are meeting at another church down the street. You genuinely love them. Would you give of yourself for their benefit? I mean, that's a legit question, right? I imagine there are some people in this room that you have stuff, you have beef between someone else in this room. I don't look at them. <laughs> don't point, don't look. But inside yourself, you know that. That there is something broken. That I'm holding on to some, some right. I'm clinging to the right that I have to hold them responsible, right? That we hold on to this stuff rather than saying, you know, for the sake of your benefit, I'm going to choose to lay down my right to get you back. I'm going to forgive you. I'm choosing to hand this off to Jesus. And maybe that's the first step. Maybe that's the first step. Because is it your natural disposition to love self-sacrificially someone else? here's the deal. When we have received and acknowledged God's love in Jesus and begin to live in loving fellowship with him, our disposition changes to everyone around us. We begin to naturally want to love other people. John's careful to point out that this is God's command and that to love God is to be obedient to to God's commands. But here's what John says. John says if you've received the Father's love, these just come naturally. It's actually easy to be obedient to God's command. Because if you have not received the love of God in Jesus, you obey commands so that you can hold up your obedience to God and say, see, I'm valuable. I mean, this is true with all of this stuff, right? See, see. I can lead people to Jesus. See all the five people that I led to Jesus, God? I'm valuable. See, God, I pray for healing for people, and so I just lay hands on people, and they get healed, and I've healed six people this week. See, God, I'm valuable. But if you receive God's love in Jesus, guess what? You just do the things, and you don't count. There's not like a, I did this many acts of love for someone else, God, so see, I'm valuable. You just know that God loves you before you do any of the things. And you just stop counting. If you're counting, you're doing it wrong. Does that make sense? If you're counting how many acts of love you do for someone else, you're doing it wrong. And all these things demonstrate that there's something amiss way back in the beginning. If we don't love our brother and sister, what it means is we're still living in fear of God, which means we actually haven't received the love of God through Jesus. Do you see how all these things are tied together? Do you live in fear of God? It means you're not living in loving fellowship with God. Is loving others unnatural for you? It means you're not living in loving fellowship with God. Let me sum it all up. And then we'll, we'll wrap up. The Spirit of God enables you to receive and acknowledge God's supreme act of love in Jesus. And when that happens, it changes the relationship that you have with God from fear to love. And what naturally is the result is that you have a desire to love other people 
Now, there's any number of you that have differing responses to this, right? Some of you are like, yes and amen, hallelujah. I haven't heard any of that yet, so we'll just assume it's not out there. Maybe one or two of you. No, I'm kidding. I don't know how many of you that is. But some of you are like, yes, I know this. This is like, this is my life. Some of you, this is like, I didn't know that's all it was. I didn't know this whole Christian faith thing was really just me being receptive of God's love, knowing and relying on the fact that God loves me and he's demonstrated it through Jesus. And if that's you, you can receive that today. That's, a, that's, that's available to you. If this feels like the best gift ever, the Spirit of God may be prompting you. Say yes to this. Receive this. Acknowledge this, and it will change your life. For others, I can imagine that there are some of us who, uh, over the course of this message, have kind of been offended at times. How dare you say that I don't have a saving relationship with Jesus? How dare you? And if that's you, you're like... He sees me. If that's you, I want to remind you of something. I have not at all made any accusations about your relationship with Jesus. If that's happening inside of you, it may be that the Spirit of God has put his finger on something. Because I have not at all questioned your faith. I've just shared with you what John says. And if that's, the, if that's you, you ought to respond to the prick of the Holy Spirit that's saying, hey, there's something amiss here. You're getting defensive about this because something's not aligned. But there may be a, a, a large number of us who, you know, at, at some level, you know, we feel like, you know, I feel like I've done the religious thing. I, you know, I sort of like I followed the Christian, like I did the things to get into the church. And, you know, I, I've, I've done all the right religious steps. But as you're talking about this, I'm afraid of God. I live afraid of God. Or I don't naturally want to love people. And as you're talking about this, I'm aware that something is amiss in my relationship with God. And yet I've built my whole life around this thing. This religious thing. And maybe I'm even the pillar in my family of what faith looks like. And so you're thinking and you're weighing and you're calculating all of the ways that this might play out if you took a step towards God and receiving the love that God has for you. And you're like, man, if I do that, am I going to have to like quit doing this? Uh, you know, I'm on the worship team and, I, you know, pe people know me as like the Christian person. And yet I'm aware right now that something is amiss. And I know that I need to do something with that. And I'm tempted to slip out the back and just do this at home so that nobody could possibly know, and we'll just fix it on our own. And could I encourage you to respond to the Spirit of God now and sort out all the other nonsense later? Because the fact of the matter is, until you have the certainty of what it is that you believe, you're not going to be willing to act in the way that God calls you to. And so if any of those are you guys, and I imagine there's a number of us, I just want to invite you to respond. And here's how I want you to respond. If you're like, hey, this is the best news ever. I didn't know this is what it was to have a relationship with God. I want that. I want you to stand just right where you are. God bless you.
the best news ever. I didn't know it was that simple. That it's not my love for God, it's his love for me. And those of you who, you you feel like this sort of resistance, and I'm kind of angry because it feels like you're making an accusation, and yet it's the Spirit of God that has highlighted something is amiss in my relationship. And I want to choose to surrender to that prompting of the Spirit. Would you stand? Something is amiss. I'm disproportionately angry. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. And the others that are, like there's, there's definitely something that's not right. And I'm afraid of what the implications are because I've built a life around the way I look. But I'm going to push through the implications now, and I'm going to respond to God now, and I'm going to receive the love of God now, and we'll sort the other stuff out. And if that's you, I want you to stand. God bless you. God bless you. Others that want to join them, I've become newly aware or reminded of something I was aware of once that God deeply loves me and that he would not withhold anything to love me. If that's you, I want you to stand. God bless you. God bless you in the back. The way forward in the kingdom is always surrender. You spin your wheels and you hope that I can make it happen and I can make God love me. If I just do a little bit more, if I just act a little bit better, I can make God love me. And the way forward is to give up, I surrender. Whether it's the first time, the 101st time, the thousand and first time, I surrender. The prayer I pray in this church all the time, in my life all the time, is Jesus, I surrender because I always want to hold on to something to prove to him that I'm valuable. And the prayer I pray every day is I surrender. Surrender. So would you guys pray with me? Those of you who are standing, if you're by one of these folks, just reach out and put a hand on an appropriate body part. Just pray for them. Make this prayer your own. Lord Jesus, I surrender. God, I've been trying to make my own way. Trying to prove to you that I have value and yet you say, by sending your son, Jesus, that you love me. Apart from anything I do, you love me. And so today, whether it be for the first time or the 101st time or the 1,001st time, I say yes. I receive your love for me. 
and I surrender, Jesus. I surrender the things that I'm trying to hold up to you to prove my value and worth, and I say yes to the value that you give me. Do you enable me, Lord, to walk in this relationship of love? Change my heart. Change the nature of our relationship. I don't want to be afraid anymore. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you fill me now? The places that I have lived out of my own self-sufficiency or out of fear, would you fill them, Lord, with your love? And God, would you make me a person who's naturally inclined to love? Lord, I say yes to all you want to do in my life. In Jesus' name. you guys. Would the rest of you guys stand? I do genuinely believe that it's God's desire that this church would be a community of people that transform the spaces they inhabit by the power of the gospel. I genuinely believe that to be true. But I think the only way that that happens is that we're intimately aware of the fact that God loves us and whatever we transform, it's really just His. That we're just agents of His love in the world. And so what I want to pray is for any of us who need a more tangible sort of sense of God's presence and His love for us. You know, you're like, I, I know God loves me. I know that. And it has changed me. And yet sometimes I find myself feeling like there's a deficit, like I, it feels far off. Like I know it here, but it doesn't hit here. I have a hard time getting God's love from my head to my heart. And so what I want to do is if that's you, I want to just pray for you. And, and I would welcome you to come up over here as this last song is going on. But I would love to just pray that the love of God would saturate you. That you might actually be able to live into this kingdom calling that God has given us. Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.